who am I, has got to be one of life's big existential questions. And uh, a variant of that question, perhaps less commonly posed, is who or what are we? So what are we? Or making it a little more specific, what are we as Christians? John, in his first letter, gives us an answer. He declares with real intensity and palpable excitement, this is what we are. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Or this is what we are. We are children of God. We are sons and daughters of God. God is our Father. This is what we are. I guess for us who have been Christians for perhaps a long time, and maybe that's true of many of us here uh, this evening, that is such a familiar truth that the very familiarity can maybe sometimes lead us to, to lose a sense of the wonder of it. Now, John knew this truth for many years, and yet he hasn't lost any sense of wonder at this reality, and he expresses it uh, on this occasion. This is what we are. We are children of God. Now, this evening, for a short time, I want to spend some time exploring and I hope enjoying this reality as we consider what John says about us as children of God. We can organize what we want to focus on under four headings that describe John as he writes the word of our passage. And he is, and uh, we are, I trust, first of all, overwhelmed by the Father's love. And we'll think a little bit about what John says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Overwhelmed by the Father's love. But then moving on in the second half of the first verse and into the beginning of verse 2, we are, and John clearly is, thrilled by our status as children of God. So overwhelmed by the Father's love and then thrilled by our status as children of God. But then also then in verse 2, in the second half of verse 2, we are excited by what awaits us as children of God. And then finally in verse 3, we are challenged to live as children of God. So that's a bit all about the outline, so you maybe have a mental kind of sense of, of what we're going to try and, and do this evening or this afternoon uh, as we work through that. So first of all then, overwhelmed by the Father's love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I think it's clear that the language John uses is the language of one who is overwhelmed, awestruck, bowled over by the Father's love. And we want to, to hear and, and echo the words and sentiments of John, but first we need to notice just very briefly, because it's basically stated so clearly, but notice the evidence that he provides that justify his superlatives. Uh, the evidence that he provides of the Father's love for us. So let's first, very briefly, identify John's evidence of the Father's love and then spend more time considering the extravagance of that love. So first of all, the evidence of the Father's love. On what grounds does John wax lyrical about the Father's love? What evidence does he supply to establish the Father's love for us? Well, we don't really need to dig very deeply. The clue is in the word Father. The simple fact that we should be called children of God is the evidence he provides. 
the evidence for this extravagant love, this overwhelming love, is simply stated that we should be called children of God. That's what proves the case of how extravagant the Father's love is, of of how overwhelming it is, that that is what we should be called. This reality or this God-given status is the evidence of the Father's love, evidence of the greatness or magnitude of the Father's love, that we, you and me, should be called children of God. But then moving on to to think a little bit, the extravagance of this love, the evidence compels John to reflect and, and celebrate and invite others to discover this great love of the Father. And in just a few words, he does so very powerfully. Verse 1 begins with a call to, to look or behold, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And what John is doing here is maybe somewhat lost in translation when we simply read it, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. The Maybe the the old word, the old-fashioned word we have in the authorized version, behold, kind of captures it more more dramatically. You know, what John is doing is, you know, just stop and and take note. Behold, just what kind of love this is. He wants people to to really consider it. I remember a time many, it must be many moons, because our boys were teenagers, and we were in Schiphol Airport, and I guess either making our way to Peru or coming back from Peru, and we were wandering through the terminal we had a little bit of time before the flight and i was well i remember i was there we, i guess we all must have been there but i do remember me john and samuel our two older boys and we were wandering through the terminal and suddenly john grabbed me and and, and he said look and he wanted me and, and his brother to look and he said it's rude hullet now i don't know if that means anything to you but rude hullet was a bit of a legend of Dutch football in the 80s and 90s and I was trying to remember, I was trying to think, how come they even knew about him? Like, they're too young. But then I remembered, of course, that he was a pundit and match of the day. So I think it was his punditry, really, was what they knew about Rude Hullet. But, like, John was just, he was so excited to see Rude Hullet. But it wasn't just that he was excited. He wanted everybody else in the family to also know and to see that there was Rude Hullet wandering through the terminal. Now, John would have been very disappointed if I had shrugged my shoulders and said, ah, you know whatever. No, he wanted me to be excited. He wanted me to take note. And and this is really what John is doing here. He's saying, look, behold, just consider this amazing reality of of the the greatness of the Father's love, that we are called his uh, children. And John goes on to comment in this same verse on both the, the nature of this extravagant love and our experience of it. We think a little of the the nature of the Father's extravagant love. In verse 1, we read, see what kind of love. Now, that that expression, what kind, translates a Greek word that originally meant of what country or, or of what region. And it's a word that expresses surprise and wonder at encountering something never seen before and wholly unexpected. The disciples used this expression of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, or it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 8 and verse 27. You don't need to look it up. You can if you want. But really, the occasion was when Jesus had stilled the storm, and the disciples are are awestruck by what they've witnessed. And remember what they say. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. 
So I think you get the idea. John is overwhelmed by the Father's love, a love that is altogether unexpected, altogether incompatible. The Father's love is in a different category to anything that we have or ever will experience. John, with the disciples on that occasion, cried out, What kind of man is this? And now, decades later, he cries out, What kind of love is this? There's something very touching in just considering John's perseverance and and how even with the passage of the decades, he hasn't lost that sense almost of childish excitement as he ponders on his heavenly Father. This love, the Father's love, is of a different order altogether, beyond measure and beyond compare. The psalmist expressed something of this sense of wonder, albeit in a somewhat different context, when he penned the words of Psalm 8 and verses 3 and 4 that we're going to be closing our service uh, singing this evening. And the psalmist says the following, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of and the son of man that you care for him? What kind of love is this that God should not only be mindful of and care for, but love and welcome into his family the likes of us? What kind of love is this? The the nature of it. But then we just think a little bit about our experience of the Father's extravagant love. John speaks of this love as given to us. You notice that in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And though I am no uh, scholar, uh, and, and, and I can't speak because of some great investigation into the, the Greek used here, but I wonder if the sense of what John is seeking to communicate here is, is better captured by the New International Version that speaks of how the Father's love is lavished on us. You know, behold what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. We are lavished, enveloped by the Father's love. This is our experience of his love as he draws us to himself, as he adopts us into his family, as he forgives our sins, as he deals gently and graciously and generously with us. Our experience of the Father's love is of a love that is extravagant, a love that is rich. Our Father so loves the world. It's such a well-known verse, but that little word is, is so tremendous, isn't it? For God so loved the world. In this passage, God simply declares the extravagance of the Father's love. But to appreciate something of the magnitude of this extravagant love, we need to appreciate what the Father has done to secure our status as his children. Now, we read in Paul's letter to the Galatians where Paul states the matter clearly and concisely. We limit ourselves just to two of the verses that we read. Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive adoption as sons. The Father secures our status as sons and daughters by the sending of his own Son, Jesus, to redeem us. And Jesus does so by dying on the cross in our place, taking the penalty of our sin, and so making possible our adoption into the family of God. 
And so John is overwhelmed by the extravagance of the Father's love. That's the first thing we wanted to notice. But let's move on to a second thing that we can draw out from this passage. John is thrilled by his status as a child of God, or we are thrilled by our status as children of God. We go back to where we began. What are we? And the words of John, and that is what we are. We are children of God. We are the sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Let's just notice more carefully what John says. And he says three things about our status as children of God. There's only three that I want to draw out and identify. First of all, he says there, and we're still in verse 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And focusing there on this this use of the expression that we're called children of God. It begs the question, by whom? Um, and I think the answer is very clear. It's God who so calls us. And I mention this because it, it simply emphasizes a very important truth, is that this is not some self-generated delusion on the part of Christians. It's not that we self-identify as children of God to, to think of something that's very much uh, in common parlance uh, these days, and I'm not going to go into that. But no, we don't self-identify as children of God. It's God who calls us his children. It's his call, and he makes the call, and he calls us his children. Now, we may sometimes doubt. Maybe you sometimes doubt your status as a child of God. But remember this, it's not your call. It's God's call, and it's God who calls us his children. And God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't say, well, yes, you were yesterday, but no longer today. No, he has decided, he has determined, he has secured our status, and he is the one who calls us his children. But then notice also in verse 2, as we just think a little bit about uh, our status as children of God, we read there, beloved, we are God's children now. And I just want to focus on the word now, and you think, well, why does... Why does John say that? You know, it it seems obvious. It seems, well, he's already told us that we're God's children. Why the need to to introduce this word? We are God's children now. Well, perhaps it's because John is going to speak in a moment of what awaits us. But to avoid any semblance of doubt, he clarifies that our status as children of God is current. Now we are children of God. Now, John doesn't on this occasion, develop the implications of this. But they are many and wonderful. We are loved as children of God now. We are members of his family now. We enjoy Jesus as our elder brother now. We are cared for and nurtured as children now. We are heirs of God now, and we could go on. And how good for us to be uh, persuaded of that and to to rest in this, this reality that now... God is our Father. Now God cares for us. As I was coming from, now where was I coming from? Um, yesterday when I arrived and I got on the tube, coming here actually to meet up with Andy, there was a mother in one of the carriages in the tube. You'll think all my illustrations are from tube carriages. But as it happened, there was this mother with her child and the child was sleeping. And there was bustle and there was movement and there was noise and you know, you People were stressed. You could tell some people were checking their phones. And and there was this little child just sleeping in her carriage there. And she woke up. The child woke up. And she looked up and she saw her mother. 
She had no notion that she was in the tube. She had no notion of everybody around her. All she knew was that there was her mother for her and with her and protecting her. She had she never cared in the world. And, and that's something of what we can enjoy as we appreciate our status as children of God now. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of, of all the stuff that life throws at us and that sometimes we generate by our own folly, God is our Father. He is your Father now. And when you open your eyes, you can be sure He is there looking over you and looking out for you. There's one other thing that John introduces as he speaks a little bit about our status. Uh, he says there uh, in, the, in, in, in verse 1, actually, going back to verse 1, he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It's, it's curious that he introduces this truth, uh, this point, but I think what he's saying is that uh, what we are, though thrilled, and it is, is not visible or understood by the world. But John does not want this to be a cause of discouragement or even doubt. And so he explains that in being unrecognized, we are an exalted company. The world did not know him. Don't be surprised if the world doesn't know us or recognize us for what we are. For all of these reasons, John is thrilled by his status as a child of God. Are you thrilled by your status as a child of God. Perhaps for somebody this afternoon, there's a prior question that needs to be posed and answered, and it's simply this. Are you a child of God? We've seen what the Father has done to secure our status in the passages that we read in Galatians. But having secured our status, how do we become children of God? The word translated children derived from the verb to bear We need to be born anew, to be born of God. Language that John himself uses in the last verse of the previous chapter. How can we know if we are born of God? Well, in the same letter, if we just look across the page to chapter 5 and verse 1, we read, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That is how we can be assured that we are indeed born of God, if we believe in Jesus, if our trust rests in him. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah and Savior of the world? Do you believe that he came and died to redeem you? Are you trusting in him as your Lord and Savior? If you are, you are born of God. Thrilled by our status as children of God. The third thing I want us to notice is that we're excited by what awaits us as children of God. There in the second half of verse 2 we read, But we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What John is recognizing is that while we are sons and daughters of God now, and he stressed that reality, there is also a future aspect. We are not yet all that God would have us be. God's ultimate purpose for us is is expounded by the Apostle Paul and the end of Romans chapter 8, and we're not going to go into that in, in any detail at all. But in particular, on that occasion, Paul speaks of how we are to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That is a work that has begun. It's God's work. It will be brought to perfection, but it is a work in progress. 
I look around me here and I see a, a work in progress. This is not what it will be in three months' time, maybe. Well, knowing builders, maybe six months' time. Work in progress. But you can kind of begin to see what it's going to be like. I suspect we're not as near to where we're going to be as this building is. But we are a work in progress. We are not yet what we will be. This is a process that has begun. We are already children of God. We are already brothers and sisters of Jesus. We are already being made more and more like Jesus. But this work of God in us awaits future consummation and completion. And when will this be? When will it be that we will be conformed uh, to the likeness of his son? Well, John tells us, when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John is looking forward to the great day when Jesus returns, and we will see him face to face. At that moment, The process that began when we were first adopted into God's family will come to its fulfillment. And the image of God in his children will be fully restored. We will be like Jesus. And how will this happen? Well, we don't really know. But what is suggested by John's words is that the very act of seeing Jesus face to face is in itself, in some marvelous way that we don't really understand, transformative. It's the way he expresses himself here. Very clearly, there's a kind of cause and effect here. Uh, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The very act of seeing him will be in some marvelous way that we'll only discover when we experience it, transformative. And God's work that he's promised that he will complete will then be completed. So excited by what awaits us as children of God. Finally, I wanted you to notice how in verse 3 we are challenged to live as children of God. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's good to be overwhelmed by the Father's love. It's right to be thrilled by our status as children of God. It's fitting to be excited by what awaits us as children of God. But we must also, with John, be challenged to live as sons and daughters now. And this is what John is stressing in verse 3. We are to purify ourselves. What does John present as our motivation to purify ourselves? Is it that we might be accepted by God? Well, no. We already are accepted by God. Is it to earn our way into his favor? No, we already enjoy his favor. Is it that we might become children of God? By no means, we already are now. No, our motivation is is twofold. It's grounded in who we are and the hope that we have. Who we are. We are children of God. And as our elder brother is pure, he has no need to purify himself, so we are to behave in a manner that reflects and reveals our identity. It's interesting, just in the previous verse, John has said how the world does not recognize us, and of course that is true in great measure, but here there's a sense in which there's a challenge that we are to do all that we can do to become more recognizable, to become more like Jesus, to become pure as he is pure, that we would uh, draw the attention, certainly, of some. So our motivation is who we are. It's because we're children of God, we have the desire 
to be like Jesus and purify ourselves that we might be like him. But then also it's grounded in the fact that we have this hope. This hope that on that great day we will be like Jesus. But we don't just wait passively for that day to come. Our desire is to become ever more like him now. And so we purify ourselves day by day, step by step, sin by sin. And who is this challenge for? Well, it's for everyone who has this hope. Do you have this hope? And if you do have this hope, will you rise to the challenge presented and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure? Well, may we all know what it is to be overwhelmed by the Father's love, thrilled by our status as children of God, excited by what awaits us and challenged to live today, this week, as sons and daughters of our loving Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you that we address you in this wonderful way as our Heavenly Father. And that is what we are. Uh, We take no uh, credit for that reality. Uh, We deserve no uh, congratulations for it. We simply humbly and joyfully acknowledge that in your grace, you have chosen to make us your children, to adopt us into your family. And we pray that we would uh, enjoy that reality, that we would live as sons and daughters of God, that we would rest in the assurance that it brings concerning your care for us and your presence with us as our uh, Father. And we pray that we would have a desire to, to live lives that are ever more like your Son, Jesus, the one whom you sent to redeem us, that we might be uh, brought into your family and be adopted as your children. Help us even in this week uh, to live lives where we uh, are grateful for who you are and all that you have done, but where we also uh, rise to the challenge to, to purify ourselves and in that way become ever more like Jesus. We do look forward to that day when we will be transformed in a way that we can't really imagine, but that we look forward to experiencing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.